So today we are continuing our discussion on spiritual warfare. I want to start by testing your knowledge of the world's predators. All right, Chuck, you're not allowed to answer. We talked about it earlier this week. Carol, I don't want to see you whispering. Okay. Don, no talking to Chuck. Dennis, I don't want you to see you over there trying to get the answer from Chuck, okay? So, do you guys know which predator on the planet has the highest success rate when hunting? Okay, you can just yell out some answers. Cheetahs, okay. Did I hear mountain lion? Did I hear mountain goat? Did someone say mountain goat? Mountain lion? Did you say shrimp? Did someone say shrimp? Shark. Mosquito? <laughs> we're not talking about parasites. We're talking about predators that catch. Leopard. Bruce? Mosquito killing wasps. Okay. It's a good guess. Yeah, Brittany, what do you think? I have a question. Yes. Well, living things. All living things. Okay. Yeah, this is a big category stuff whales oh turtles what people okay that's interesting good okay okay no sorry the correct answer is the dragonfly yeah that's right these small very beautiful fast-flying insects are the most successful predators on the planet. And to put this in perspective for you, let's just go through some of the apex predators that we think of, right? So wolves, they hunt in packs. They have a 14% success rate on their catches. 14%. I don't... The wolf guy, I called him this morning to ask. Lions, the lion guy told me, lions have a 25% success rate. Cheetahs were a good guess. They have a 58% success rate. Pretty good. African wild dogs are by far the most successful mammals. There are these, they're kind of like African wolves, uh, but they're smaller, more like what we would consider a dog. And they have a success rate, 65, 70, 75%, depending on how it goes. And they hunt in packs, which is very, very impressive. A dragonfly, has a 95% success rate in catching. Some studies show up to like 98, pretty much like 100% of the time, a dragonfly is going to catch their prey. And of course, they're hunting smaller prey than like a lion, but they're also smaller than a lion, so it's proportional. They hunt things like other dragonflies, uh, houseflies, other small flying insects. Now, I have tried swatting flies before. I'm sure you guys have too. Like at a picnic or something, you try to get the fly out of the air. You just look like an idiot. Um, I have very, very, like compared to a dragonfly, I am embarrassingly bad at catching flies. Like probably a 2% success rate, I would say. Maybe 1%. And what makes dragonflies so successful is that they are ambush predators. So they wait until their target is within range of their perch. And with a burst of speed that can reach up to 35 miles an hour, they strike at their prey. And they catch their prey mid-air and usually eat it within seconds with giant jaws. Like, eat it before they can go back and land. They just like, boom, eat it. The uh, Latin name for dragonflies means the toothed one because they were known for their giant mandibles. 
Dragonflies also have a huge set of compound eyes. Obviously, you can see them bulging out of the front of their head right there. They can see almost 360 degrees, and they can detract, attract, track movement within one degree of their eyesight. So if something moves one degree across their eyesight, they will respond to that movement within 50 milliseconds, which is like three to six times faster than the best people in the world are at reacting to things. And what makes dragonflies so impressive is they have a cluster of 16 neurons in their brain, which go straight from their eyes and connect to their wings, the wing muscles. And they have a set of four wings, if you didn't know. So scientists have done these tests where they take little flies on sticks and they put it in the, in the way of the dragonfly and they have like little probes on it and they measured the 52nd millisecond time. But they also realized that depending on the side of the body, certain neurons would fire. And what they learned is that a dragonfly doesn't think about catching prey. These neurons like bypass the thinking part of the brain and they just control their wings. So they don't think about catching something. They react by catching something. It would be like a reflex, like when someone hits your knee and your leg moves, like you don't think about that. That is how a dragonfly catches prey. And these four wings, which are controlled by these direct neurons from their eyes, allow them to fly in any direction, any, any direction, upside down, backwards, on an angle up to the right. It's just like crazy. They are some of the best flyers on the planet. And they can also change the phase of their wings so they can hover, they can go faster, they can create more lift. They just are incredible. Like I said, they can fly up to 35 miles an hour, which by comparison, a house fly flies 4.5 miles an hour. So it's really fast, like not even close. They're one of the fastest flying insects. Some studies show that horse flies are faster, but I couldn't find conclusive evidence that I would feel comfortable sharing with you. But dragonflies, to my knowledge, are one of the fastest, if not the fastest, insects on the planet flying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they outperform their prey in every single way. And in much the same way, we are up against a formidable foe that has greater power than us, more knowledge, more resources, more weapons, more time. In our spiritual fight, we are simply outgunned with our innate abilities. We are like a gnat flying a dragonfly. Like, we're not even close. And if we were just under our own power and abilities to fight against the kingdom of darkness, we would lose every single time. Luckily, we aren't using our own power to fight against evil, which is why we can actually win some of these spiritual battles and conflicts, but we're going to be talking about it in the next couple of weeks. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but for today, what we're going to be talking about is our enemy. How he looks, what he stands for, his tactics, and how he intends to defeat us in spiritual warfare. So F.F. Bruce, a commentator, said this. To be forewarned about the nature of the devil's wiles is to be forearmed against them. That being said, the more we understand the devil, his schemes, and what he does, the better we are going to be able to fend off his attacks. So I broke down our discussion today into four categories. So we have Satan's character, the goals of the enemies, 
enemy tactics, and then our other enemies. Things that are fighting with Satan on his side. So let's start by talking about Satan and his character. And if you want to, you can just get Ephesians 6 ready. We're going to be there eventually. Uh, So if you want to turn to Ephesians 6, you can. And if you remember, at the end of last year, we did a Names of God series. And in that series, we looked over how uh, God is named. And from that, we derive things about his character and how he works. If you're trying to find Ephesians, my favorite acronym is Go Eat Popcorn, Crazy, because I love popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Go Eat Popcorn, Crazy. Anyway, so in a similar way, we can look at the names that Satan has, and we can derive things about who he is. So here are all the names that the adversary has, Satan, the devil, um, most of them. And I feel like this list is pretty much comprehensive enough for us to get an idea of who he is. I'm not going to ask you to turn to all these passages. They're just up here for your reference if you want to write them down or take a picture. So the word devil is used over 30 times in the New Testament by New Testament authors. And it means slanderer or accuser. Someone who purposely creates lies to tear us down and hurt someone's reputation. They use fossil... Falsities to damage someone. And that's what it means to be a slander or accuser. And the other name, adversary, is similar but a little different. The literal definition of this word is someone who stands opposite you, someone who is contrary to you in attitude and position, someone who is your opponent, an adversary. So the devil is not a friendly critic. He's not looking to build us up by edifying us. There is healthy uh, opposition. That's edification. We do that within the church between believers. That's our job. The devil, on the other hand, stands opposite to us, and he points at our sins and our flaws, and he uses lies to gain an advantage over us. He's our adversary. Then Satan. Satan is very similar to the word devil, but it has its roots in Hebrew, hasatan, which is why... It's the most popular name for the devil in the Old Testament, but it's also used in the New Testament. And it means adversary, very much similar to the devil and being just called the adversary. And what we can take away from Satan as his name is that he is the enemy of God, and he is the enemy of all who belong to God. Satan fights with God against his will and his intention by attacking his people by subverting his authority in this world. The devil is also called the tempter. One thing we know about Satan is that he uses sin as a bait to try and lure us away from God. We saw Satan acting as a tempter with Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, and also in 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, he's also mentioned as the tempter. And on a few different occasions, the tempter puts before Jesus... Things that could have benefited him in the moment. He was hungry. He was fasting for 40 days. He's like, just turn that rock into bread and just be filled. And he offered them the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus had the chance to fall into that temptation, to be disobedient towards God. And that is what the tempter wants us to do. So he uses that tactic. He's also called a destroyer. The word in Hebrew is Abaddon, or in Greek, 
Apollyon. And Satan categorically does not want to bring us life. He wants to destroy us. Any small offer of peace or happiness or wealth or success given by him will ultimately bring us death. Right? He's a destroyer. Listen how James 1, 14, 15 talks about sin, because I think it will help us understand how Satan uses it. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it has run its course, brings forth death. Sin has no other destination besides death. There is no life opposite to God's will. Satan is also called the evil one. And you have to be pretty evil to get the title, the evil one, as your name, right? Like you get the full category of the evil one. That's you. And this is how Jesus talks about Satan in the Lord's Prayer, which we have said before, and you you probably know it. It says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, right? But that is actually kind of a misrepresentation. It says, deliver us from the evil one. Not just like evil in general or like bad things. Jesus isn't saying, oh God, please protect us from the poor influences in our life. No, he's saying, please protect us from Satan, the devil, the evil one. A being that is represented and is wholly evil. So we learn from that name that Satan is just no good at all. He is entirely evil. He is called the dragon, the serpent of old, and the roaring lion. And we're going to look at these three names together because I think they do a good job of talking about Satan's ugliness, his power, his strength, his cunning, and his hostility towards God and his people. So he's called the dragon, the serpent of old, and the roaring lion. And I think these names imply the animalistic impulses to destroy and hunt. Like his viciousness comes out in these names. And a dragon specifically gives off this monstrous, grotesque description. Something that has specialized abilities to destroy and devour. Something that is almost unnatural. And much like the dragonfly, Satan's killing abilities have these kind of natural instincts. He just does it by nature. He's also called the god of this age. Satan is called also the prince and the power of the air. So both of these names imply some sort of power in this world, some sort of dominion beyond most authorities, beyond us certainly, beyond our natural abilities. And when it comes to a basic head-to-head comparison, we are obviously outclassed. He's everywhere, it seems. He permeates this age in this world. And he is in conflict with God in this age in this world. But remember, we aren't fighting this alone. And because of that, we do have the power to combat him. He's also called a murderer and a liar. Jesus says in John 8 that he was a murderer from the beginning and that he is the father of lies. In fact, the first spiritual attack recorded in Scripture was a lie. The first sin was a lie, the first sin that we see. Many people think the first sin recorded is when Eve eats the tree or the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
But the first sin is when, sin, when Satan actually calls into question the word of God. When he says, has God really said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Right? He, he perverts God's words and he puts a, a scrap of doubt in Eve's mind. That's the first sin. It's a lie. The first deception. The first temptation. He is the father of lies. And this is just an interesting point. The first recording, sin, first recorded sin is a lie, and the last mention of sin in Scripture is also a lie. Revelation twenty two fifteen says uh, this about the church and, and God's city: it says outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral persons, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. <coughs> The Bible is bookend by lies as this sin that we should be particularly against. So in your life, if you want to ward off Satan and fight against him, make sure that you hold truth close to your heart, that you speak truth every single time you can. And Satan is also called the ruler of this world. So we are in an evil age. And therefore the evil one has authority now in this world. But importantly, so importantly, this does not rid God of his sovereignty over us. After all, God created everything. Everything includes Satan. He is an all-powerful, almighty God. He has already been victorious over Satan. The conclusion of the war has already been marked out. And now Satan is furiously attempting to bring as many people with him into the defeat. To bring us back to the next category, let's talk about his goals. Right? What are the goals of Satan? We know his names, and I think a little bit of his character points towards what he's trying to accomplish. First of all, he's trying to blind us from God's truth. If something gets in the way of your pursuit of God, you should be extremely weary of that thing. After all, Satan is the father of lies, and he looks to separate us from God's truth, to separate us from what God says and what he thinks. And ultimately, Satan wants us to think that we are our own gods. And by doing that, he actually enslaves us to lies. And that makes Satan our ruler. On top of that, Satan doesn't want to just block us from God's truth. He also wants to establish and institute his own lies. Satan would love if we just ignored everything God said and believed everything that he told us. So if we're sold out to the lies of the devil, then the truth of God becomes even more obscure, and we fall further into the dominion of darkness. There is a deep veil over this age. And when you read the Bible and you look at what God wants from us, and then you look at the world, you see that they're incompatible. But that shouldn't surprise us. The prince of the power of the air, the God of this age, the ruler of this world, is propagating his lies here, and he's concealing the truth of God as much as he can. Satan would have us believe that anything other than God's truth is okay. So whatever lie speaks to your preference... And to your desires, he will happily endorse. Also, Satan wants to destroy us. 
There is nothing good in the evil one. So everything we get from him is ultimately meant to destroy us. We need to get that through our minds. He's not our friend. There is no good in him. He wants to destroy our faith and destroy our lives. He wants us to die without salvation. And Satan knows scripture. That's kind of the scary thing about him, is that he knows what God says. And so he will use that, and he will twist it, and he's been doing that for thousands of years, and he will try to destroy it and destroy us. He's like a vicious animal, and he's backed into a corner, and he's lashing out this world. That's what he wants. He's clawing at anything that he can grab a hold of. And lastly, he wants to take us captive to this world. Acts 10.38 says that Jesus went about doing good, and he healed everyone who was oppressed by the devil. And that's the word I have here. Katadynastio is the word oppressed by the devil used in Acts 10.38. But what it actually means is to exercise harsh control over. So what Jesus did in his ministry is he went and freed people from the harsh control of Satan. Right? So Satan wants to take us captive. He wants to enslave us. He wants us to be his servants. And Jesus is here to liberate us from that and give us life. So let's look at the methods of the evil one. Right? First, let's start in Ephesians 6. I said we were going to be there. And we're going to look at verse 11. Let's read it together. It says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So don't leave Ephesians 6 because we're going to look at another verse here in a minute. But this word schemes is the Greek word methodias, which um, we would probably recognize that word methodias. What does it sound like? It sounds like method or methodical, right, in our English language. That's because it means intent and planning and purpose. And my research into this word showed me that many Greek writers actually used methodia as a description of how animals stalk their prey. So an animal, methodia, walks around stalking his prey looking for a perfect opportunity to strike. Recognize also that methodias is plural. The devil just doesn't have one scheme, he doesn't have one method, but he has a whole tool bag of weapons to use against us. So he's like the dragonfly. He has speed and powerful jaws and acute eyesight and superior flight. And he's going to use all of those things to hunt us down. So these are the different ways that Scripture has recorded Satan attacking people. First of all, he uses lies. No surprise there. He's the father of lies. We've talked about that. The first recorded incident in Genesis 3, first sin, is a lie. Satan also uses affliction. In certain, certain circumstances, that's kind of hard to say, certain circumstances, Satan will literally cause physical damage to our property or our health to get us to try to betray our faith in God, much like we see in the book of Job. He also hinders us. He stops us from doing things. Paul records that Satan, uh, in 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul records that Satan stopped them, hindered them from going to the church in Thessalonica for a time. I'm not exactly sure how that looks or what that meant, but it is clear that he hinders us. He stops us from doing things that God would like us to do. 
He's also a stealer. I'm sure Chuck has talked about this in a Sunday school class, but it says that in the parable of the sower that Satan steals the word that has been sown in the heart of the listener before it has an opportunity to take root and change the hearts and minds. So those who are closed off to Scripture and they maybe get a little bit of it here and there, Satan will try to steal that. He also uses temptation, as we saw uh, in Matthew 4 with Jesus. Satan will offer us things that he thinks we want in order to pull, pull us away from the will of God. And if he can successfully tempt us, if he can successfully get us to sin, then he has successfully created division between us and God. He also uses persecution. And this is all over the New Testament, but specifically in Revelation 2.10, it talks about how Satan causes difficult, hard social situations to try to stop us from sharing truth, to pressure us to abandon our faith in pursuit of comfort. He uh, says, and Jesus says to the church in Revelation 2.10 that Satan is going to throw you into prison for a time. Persecution is very common in the New Testament. And you know this. Christians have been imprisoned, had their possessions taken away, or even killed for their own faith, sometimes even by other Christians. If he can create us, divide in us, all the better. And he also uses our own sin. Now, I think this is one of the most subtle ways that Satan fights against us. Ephesians 2, Paul says this, You were dead in your offenses and sins, which you previously walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. So what Paul is saying is that you were once in your sins, and when you were in your sins, you were walking alongside the evil one. Right? You were with him in your sin, walking joyfully in accordance with the ruler of this age. And so our sin puts us in alliance an allegiance, so to speak, or aligns us with the goals of Satan. And these are some particular sins that Satan likes to exploit. Anger, unforgiveness, sexual sins. We are told to flee from sexual immorality. It's one of the only times in Scripture that we are told to flee from a specific sin. And Satan also uses pride. In 1 Timothy 3.6, it says, and not a new convert talking about placing people in the church, so that he will not become conceited, prideful, and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Right? Satan is a very prideful being. He wants to establish himself as a ruler and an authority, and he wants to convince us that we can also be our own ruler and authority. It's a, it's a scam. We can't be. And when we are prideful, it inhibits us from repentance because we think we're right in what we are doing. And if we can't repent, then our hearts are hardened towards God, right? So he uses our own sin against us. And lastly, for a minute, let's just talk about our other enemies. Look at Ephesians 6.12, just a verse lower. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So we talked a little bit about this last week, 
But I want us to emphasize and truly know that our fight is not against flesh and blood. It is not against people. I know some of you have went through difficult times with people that you are really close to and love. And you want to point at them and you say, look at what that person did to me. Look at how bad they are. But our fight is not against those people. There is something deeper beyond that. Ephesians 4.14, however, does say that people can be used as weapons in spiritual fights. They can be our, a, a tool of the enemy. They can speak false, falsely about us and try to twist us, right? But they are not our ultimate enemy. What Ephesians uh, 6.12 says is that we are in a struggle against these bigger forces. And that word is actually an athletic word, not a military word. It's the word for wrestle. And it gives us a really intimate view of the close quarter combat that we are in with Satan. It's not something that we just are from a distance fighting Satan. But we are struggling with him and his powers. Wrestling them. Right? So the uh, first word, principalities here, or what the NASB calls rulers, this is a, a plural noun, which means those of first importance, or those who have authority. And this both can mean earthly and spiritual authorities. And there are obviously some very big power structures in the world that stand for the things the Bible calls evil. But they are not the source of those lies. Satan is behind them, so we need to even recognize that. And we need to fight those lies by sharing God's truth, by putting it in our hearts, by standing up for the truth of God. It also says that we are fighting against powers. And this is referring to demonic spirits. The next three are kind of describing these demonic spiritual powers, what we would call the angels of Satan. And we could talk about it as the rulers of darkness, right? There are these authorities, these demonic powers these authorities in the kingdom of Satan, which are described as spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. So we're not at war on the human level. We are at war with things in the spiritual realm. I think a, a good way to the spiritual hosts of wickedness, the Greek is more like the spirituals, the spiritual ones, the ones who occupy a different place than the physical world. And that's what Paul is talking about. So just like angels come from the spiritual part of this reality into our reality and give messages from God and scripture, demons also come from this spiritual side of things on behalf of Satan. And then they sometimes have effects in the physical world. And so we call the spiritual realm the heavenly places. And then there's this flesh and blood place that we have, that we understand, right? And so what happens is these authority, these powers, these things of darkness are waging war against us from the spiritual realm. And the methods of these wicked ones are shown right here. Lies and afflictions and hindering and stealing, temptations, persecutions, and our own sins. That is what we need to be on the lookout for. So we're not only fighting Satan, But we're fighting evil authorities and demons that have worked and are empowered in this age. And importantly, our enemies, they aren't passive, right? They're not unthinking foes, but they are ones with methods. 
and plans. So like an act of nature, like a hurricane comes through and destroys your house. You can't really get mad. You can't fight against a hurricane, right? It doesn't have intent and plan. But you can fight against a being who has methods and is looking to destroy you. So today we are finishing up now. I know this is a little longer than we normally go. But there's a lot of very important things to cover. I want to finish up today by just giving you a list of questions to think about. To help you internalize and personalize what we've learned. And and truly think about these. Which tactics has Satan successfully used against you? Alright? So look back here. These are his methods. Which of those has Satan successfully used against you? What areas of God's truth has Satan challenged in your life? He wants us to abandon what God says. What areas is he challenging in your life? And then also, think about this. What happens when we forget that our battle is not against flesh and blood? What are the negative side effects when we forget that we're fighting a spiritual war? Who gets hurt? How is God's kingdom lessened? So write these questions down, take a picture, whatever you want to do. I want you to really be thinking about them this week. And I want you to try to answer them. Because if you can, you will be better prepared to fight your spiritual battles on an individual level. Please pray with me this morning. God, I thank you for this opportunity to unveil the evil one and his strategies. I pray that you let us stand strong against him, that you protect us from him, and that you allow us to uphold your truth in this world and to share it and to spread it so that others can have eternal life. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.